If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. 1 Peter, chapter 4. We've been uh, looking through the very end of this, this book together, 1 Peter, and at the very end of his letter, he has all of these very short uh, exhortations or statements or urges where he uh, is desperate for his readers to hear these and to internalize them and then to act on them. And so we've looked at all kinds of things, from being sober for the sake of our prayers because the end is near, to loving above all things because love covers a multitude of sins, to offering hospitality without grumbling, to using our gifts because God has given them to us out of His grace. And uh, this morning the topic is uh, about persecution and trials and difficulty. Not my favorite message to give, but let's, let's read this together. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ... You are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear His name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. Don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal which has come upon you. Uh, Have you ever known someone who has selective hearing? Perhaps you have selective hearing. Perhaps I have selective hearing. If my kids or my wife were in here at this moment, they might give you examples. Uh, But uh, we all sort of have that, right? But who is best at it uh, seems to be kids, right? So I can, if my kids are engrossed in uh, a book or engrossed in a video game or engrossed in jumping on the trampoline and I say to them, it's time for dinner, I usually have to say that seven, eight, nine, ten times before I start getting a, huh, a dad, you're saying something? If I say to them, let's go to Chuck E. Cheese, they hear it on the first time, right? They get it right away. They have selective hearing. And sometimes we're like that as followers of Jesus, right? Sometimes we're like that. And we love to claim the promises of Jesus. Uh, He'll take our burdens. I love that one. I hear that one all the time, right? God is love. I hear it. I love that one. Uh, Jesus also says, in this world you will have trouble. Count on it. Like, that's the one where I turn my ears off. I don't hear that one. I don't want to know about that. I don't like to know about that. And it's not just that ignorance is bliss. I'm not interested in this kind of life at all, right? But constantly throughout the New Testament, there's all this writing about trials and struggle and trouble and persecution and difficulty. And they have sort of the audacity, these writers, to say, like, love it when this stuff happens and rejoice in it and be glad and Give God praise for it. And it it just boggles my mind, right? 
And I think if you're being honest with me, it troubles you just as much as it does because who looks forward to something like that? And who, even in the midst of it, rejoices in the midst of it? So, lest we have selective hearing, we need to deal with this issue this morning because Peter says to us, don't be surprised. In other words, it's going to happen. Uh, And he doesn't just say, don't be surprised when you hit a bump in the road, right? His words are, when this fiery ordeal comes to you as if something strange had happened to you. Uh, It's actually the same word as surprise, so he's basically saying, don't be surprised when this fiery ordeal hits you as if something surprising happened to you. So he's, he's reiterating the same thing so much to tell us, listen, get ready, be set for it, uh, and deal with it. Don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal that comes with you. I think we need to have a right perspective. So three things we want to talk about this morning. Having a right view of the world, having a right view of Christ, and having a right view of the end, as it were, the end uh, of existence. A right view of the world, a right view of Christ, and a right view of the end. So a right view of the world. Uh, And this is exactly where Peter starts. Don't be surprised, right? The world isn't this perfect place that we're going to float through. Like we always, always, this is the lesson I seem to be always sharing with my boys at dinner. Uh, When they enter uh, a a raffle at school or they uh, run for student council and things don't work out, that's life, right? We tell, we tell, we give this cliche as parents, but there's really, it's almost not cliche. It's kind of just reality is what it is. Like that's life. And things aren't always going to go the way that you want them to go. It's not always going to be smooth. There are going to be bumps in the road. And if we're going to use the analogy of road, you know what it's like to take a trip somewhere. There's all kinds of unexpected things that pop up from needing to stop for gas and being in line to it, to getting a flat tire, to hitting traffic or detours or all of the things that frustrate us. I have to travel Route 222 later today to visit my parents. Something will happen on that road because inevitably it always does. And usually, uh, for me, it's getting behind a massive tractor trailer just as it goes from 55 to 35 for the next 20 miles. This is sort of our existence. So Peter is saying to us, don't be surprised. Have a right view of the world. It's not this perfect place that you're going to skate through. We've talked about the theological realities of this together, that we live in this in-between existence where we have everything God promises us, but not fully. And so we're living in the blessings of God, but in the realities of this world. And you experience it every day. It's broken. It's jagged. It's difficult. There's moments of glory and there's moments of struggle. Peter's saying, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Be ready for when this fiery ordeal hits you. A right view of the world. A right view of the world for us. Don't be surprised. A right view of Christ. This is what Peter wants to say. Let's read this again. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery deal that comes, has come on you to test you as though something strange uh, were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer... You shouldn't do it on your own doing. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear His name. A right view of Christ. 
Isn't it interesting when Peter talks about persecution here and suffering and difficulty? Very, very little is the, the, pre, uh, the pronoun you or me or I use, right? It's always the name of Jesus. And there's something very revealing in that for us, in so much that the struggles that come on us, the persecution that we face as followers of Jesus, is really about Him and not about us. Does that make sense? See, that's difficult. It's really easy to talk about that. But in the midst of it, it's really difficult to live into that reality, isn't it? Because when something comes your way, because you're following Jesus, the way that I tend to receive it, and maybe you're not like me at all, is, look what just happened to me. And how am I going to react to what just happened to me? And how could this have happened to me? What Peter wants us to do is change our perspective, have a right view of Christ, that this has happened to him, not to us. That this is directed at him, not at us. And so then... This idea of rejoicing in the midst of trials and tribulations begins to take a little bit of life if we change perspectives like this because what Peter is telling us is that so rejoice because what it means is that you have been found in him. That someone has, has persecuted you, has spoken against you, has come against you because you're following Jesus means that they have recognized in you a pursuit of Jesus. There's something to rejoice about in that. There's something to praise God about that, that, that in you has been found the image of Christ. Now, the rejoicing is not meant to sort of glaze over and think, that, think happy thoughts about what you're experiencing, right? Uh, at first glance, we sort of take it that way when James says, consider it pure joy when all kinds of trials come. We're supposed to pretend like this is a happy thing and we should welcome it and, and things like that. But what they're really talking about is that in the moment of persecution, if we can change our perspective, there is room for rejoicing because we've been found in Christ. And Jesus has been seen in us. And this is good. We don't rejoice because trials have found us. We rejoice because we are united to Christ. And all that that means. If we're going to have a right perspective on Christ, we need to change our perspective. And then secondly, we need to live for Jesus. It's so interesting that the word test shows up in that first verse, that something is testing you, uh, that that God has given this to test you. And there are two realities of being tested. Uh, The first is that that, uh, Satan is eager to test every follower of Jesus. The scriptures are riddled with this reality. The book of Job, which is this huge story of testing and persecution and struggle and trial on on a follower of Christ, a follower of God, a lover of God, begins with Satan pleading with God the chance to bring trials onto Job. Why? Because he wants to prove the shallowness of Job's faith. Satan is eager to bring trial and testing on us to prove the shallowness of our faith. This is why Satan tests Jesus in the wilderness in the 40 days. He wants to prove that Jesus isn't the one that God has promised, isn't who he says he is. And then ultimately, remember this this saying uh, that when Jesus says to, to Peter, oh Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat, right? And Jesus wouldn't, God wouldn't allow it. 
because Satan wanted to bring temptation on him, wanted to bring trial on him, wanted to bring testing on him. This is why in the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, one of the integral parts of it is Jesus saying, pray that you are not led into temptation or trial because it will not be good, pleasant, easy, and most likely will cave into it, right? All of those who surrounded Job in the midst of his struggle and trial told him to curse God and be done with it. And yet he pressured through because he knew he had a different understanding, a changed perspective, what it meant to live for God. What it means to live for Christ. I love how this little section ends in verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. When you're in the midst of it, committing yourself to the faithfulness of God. And I love that he uses the word creator there because I think that imagery of creator and creation is the right imagery saying that, hey, we're created beings from a creator and it's right for us to place ourselves back into his hands because he is faithful. And then continue to do the things that you've been called to do. Continue to live for Christ the things that have even brought on persecution and struggle and trial and difficulty. This is the call on all of us in the midst of persecution. Listen, persecution is not fun. It's not easy. Trials that come into your life are not fun and not easy. But Jesus has promised us that they're coming. And lest we are ready to deal with them in a right way, they're going to smack us like an unforeseen obstacle, and totally derail us and put us off course. This is what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All those who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. All those who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. Now what that means, if you're you're saying that you've never faced persecution, there are questions to be unraveled in the midst of that. And maybe persecution isn't some verbal uh, accosting of you because of your faith, but there are other ways that it shows out in societal bias, uh, in image and perspective of people on you because of how you spend your money or how you orient your day or the values that you place, or maybe it's a societal reality that's going on. But there is a promise to us that this is going to happen. So, lest we get derailed by it, we need to have a right view of the world a right view of Christ, and then a right view of the end. A right view of the end. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear His name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's hard for the righteous to be saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Why does Peter use the word, don't be ashamed? One of the things that I love about Peter's writing and the accounts that Peter gives is they're very personal. So we can turn back just a few decades of history and remember that when the fiery ordeal came upon Jesus and the disciples, what was Peter's response? He spoke a great word, right? I'll never deny you, Jesus. I'm with you to the bitter end. 
But he was not ready for the fiery ordeal that was to come upon him. And so when the moment hit, Jesus prophesied to him that he would deny him deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. It happened. And Peter found himself completely derailed, completely pushed off course, completely in opposition to the path God had had for him because he wasn't ready. And so Peter's honest and personal and emotional urge to all of us is, don't do what I did. It's the best advice a mentor gives to someone who's trying to learn from them. This is what I did, and this is what happened because of it. You don't want to make the same mistake that I made. Peter is doing that in all of his urges, and and just so much here again, don't be ashamed. Now, it's a little bit different in our world than it was in that world, and it's still sort of this way in the Eastern mindset, the Eastern world. Shame is a huge deal. If you're publicly shamed, it's sort of the end of your existence. And so keeping honor in public is paramount. And it was very much the same way uh, in the days of Jesus and, and, the, and the early church. So much so that Paul constantly, when he's writing his letters, is telling people, listen, I know I'm in prison, but you can trust me. I'm still an apostle of, of God. God has still commissioned me to this. This gospel is still true. He's spending so much time counteracting his imprisonment because to the world viewing in, the fact that he was in prison meant that his message wasn't a prevailing message. Right? It's why the gospel writers always say that the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. It's a stumbling block to those who don't believe because it's an end. Right? Jesus has come to bring this great kingdom and he meets his death on a cross. That's it. It's over. He ends in shame. But the story doesn't end there. We know that the resurrection leads to a whole new existence, a whole new life. And the story of Christianity and following Jesus is very much the same. In the moment, it may look impossible. It may look doomed to defeat. It may look like a losing formula. But in the end, we have the promise of the resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits. And ultimately, God's plan of restoration for the world is going to be fulfilled. You know, it's the old, we win in the end. Right? That's just kind of a stupid way to say it, but it's the reality of what Peter wants us to say. A right view of the end here says that even though in the midst of this suffering and it looks like my faith is in vain and things aren't working the way it should and God, why aren't you pushing this through? The ultimate reality is that God's plan of restoration for the world is going to prevail It is going to be restored, and everything is going to be as God had intended it to be. So don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Paul's very clear phrase to the Romans when he writes the letter, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the call of Peter here for us too. Don't be ashamed. In the end, God's plan is victorious. What God intends for this world is going to happen. But, in the same way, we need to have this right perspective on the end. It needs to, and this is where it sort of gets really hard for us. It gets really hard for me, anyway. It it informs how we view those who are causing the hurt on us. Right? As Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Our thinking is, 
you're in my way, I'm going to cause you as much trouble as you cause me. And if I happen to get by you, I'm going to kick dirt on you as I go around, right? What? If you can give it out, you're going to have to take it too. But Jesus ha- talks a very different way. Pray for those who persecute you. And it's cultured in this reality, isn't it? That, that in the end, those who don't fear God, those who live in opposition to God, if it's so difficult to find faith in God, if it only comes through Christ, then how much more difficult will it be for those who don't believe in Christ? The reality is that it's impossible to find peace with God through any other way than Jesus. And this isn't a statement of vindication. Many of us would maybe receive it that way, that, all right, I'll take it from you now, but in the end, you're going to get yours kind of stuff. That's not the way that Peter is writing. It's not the way that Jesus lived. It's not the way that the early church lived. Their heart was so impressed with the reality of what it meant to have an eternity apart from God that their heart was informed by it so much so that when they received the persecution of people and the persecution they received far outweighs most anything that any of us will ever see and or read about. And there were stories. Jesus' death on the cross is heinous enough as it is. There are stories of Roman emperors, Nero, for instance, who wanted to, wanted to redo uh, parts of Rome, but the people were against it. So he set a fire in the city of Rome. And because the public wasn't so keen on this new movement called Christianity, he blamed it on them. And so just ratcheted up this persecution on the church, even so much so that then when, when Nero began to start having parties and gatherings in his house, he used Christians as human torches, put them on poles and lit them on fire to provide light for his parties. This is the fate that most of the people who are receiving this are talking about. And Jesus is saying the way that you, and Peter is saying through Jesus, the way that you think about the people who are doing this is informed by the reality And so much so that when Jesus is lifted up on a cross, what are his words? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't hold it against them. I know what the future holds for those whose sins are are held against them. Forgive them. Stephen, when he's being stoned, what does he say? Father, forgive, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Jesus, when he's rejected by Jerusalem, goes out on a hill and weeps over the city who has just rejected him. Because they know their mind is cultured with mercy because they're aware of the fate of the end. And so it should be for us. When Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you, this is the attitude and the mindset that ought to rise out of us that's filled with the love that comes from God. It's filled with an awareness of the ignorance that is possessed by people who would stand in your way. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And look, Saul, who would become Paul and become perhaps the most influential expander of the kingdom in the history of Christianity, has written all kinds of letters for us here in the scriptures, was one of the people who was leading the stoning of Stephen. What kind of influence do you think Stephen had on Saul? when he says, Father, forgive them. What kind of influence did Jesus have on those who were around him when he was up on a cross and said, Father, forgive them? 
Well, a Roman centurion turned to a person next to him and said, Surely this man was the Son of God. And the thief next to him confessed him as Christ, and Jesus said, Today you'll be received into my kingdom. What we know is that in the midst of trial and trouble and persecution and difficulty, that's when the kingdom of God advances the most. We don't like that. It's not a formula that feels good to us, but history bears it out. In this country, we feel very little persecution for our faith, and the church is waning. In in the East and the Middle East, and in countries where even the Christian Missionary Alliance has people that we can't even say their name or the country where they're in, the church is growing like crazy, but in the midst of unbelievable persecution. In the early church, it grew like crazy in the midst of persecution. And that's why the church even ever spread out of Jerusalem. If you read the middle chapters of Acts, they kept gathering in Jerusalem, kept gathering in Jerusalem. It wasn't until persecution came on them that the church scattered and ultimately went to the ends of the earth. Persecution always leads forward. So how you handle yourself in the midst of persecution has eternal consequences. And who's to know from all those who are looking be it persecution, trial, struggle, difficulty, health crisis, whatever it is, who's to know those who are looking on to you as you attempt to give glory to God in the midst of it, how they'll be impacted by how you've chosen to live. And so Peter says, don't be surprised. Jesus has promised in this world you will have trouble. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you. Because ultimately, in the end, testing isn't just something that, that, that Satan wants to do to us to prove the shallowness of our faith. It's also something that God allows for us to prove the reality of our faith. We read earlier in the Psalms this idea of a refining fire that does not consume that which is unconsumable. And when we move through times of struggle and trial and difficulty and persecution, what we have found is that the faith which we proclaim with our mouth has traction, is real, and will see us through to the end. So don't be surprised. Have a right view of the world. (laughs) Have a right view of Christ. And have a right view of the end. And in the midst of persecution... Let our prayer be not, God, why is this happening to me? And what should I do about it? But Jesus, this is happening because of your name. And help me to glorify God rather than be intimidated. Let's pray together. God, we admit that uh, we, uh, I admit that I would like an easy life. I would like no hiccups, a straight path, no struggles and no difficulty. And yet, time and time again, scriptures remind me that this isn't the life we have. And so, Spirit, we pray. Pray that you come upon us afresh, that you prepare us for the struggles that might lie ahead that you'd ready us by affirming our faith in Christ. 
and that you give us perseverance to bear through and give glory to God. We pray that in the highs and the lows, in the mountaintops and the valleys, in all parts of our lives, that you would be honored, Jesus. That your name would go forward and that your kingdom would expand. We ask it in your name. Amen.